Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much indeed for tuning in. And as usual, what a lot to reflect on. The week of the reset. In the New Labour era, they used to call it a relaunch. Every now and again, they would have a relaunch in number 10. Now it's a reset. Well, we'll look at that reset in a minute. And of course, uh, there will be time to hear some of your brilliant questions. And on that front, please keep them coming, raising points or asking questions. Some genius emailed me and said, you know what you could do? You could put the email address on the blurb about the podcast. I thought, oh yeah, hadn't thought about that. Because that means you can pick up the address anytime. But for those of you with a pen by your side now and some paper, the email address is steverick14, that's steve then rick14, at icloud.com. steverick14 at icloud.com. But I'm going to add it to the blurb when I build this uh, podcast. So that's all kinds of ways in which we can keep in touch. Before we begin with any of those things, just a reminder that the next live stream show from King's Place is this coming Monday. I think it's Monday, November the 23rd at seven o'clock. And that will be a kind of epic night, actually, because I think by then, I know we've said this so many times, but I think by then we'll know where we're heading with these Brexit talks for deal or no deal. And either way, there are going to be eruptions as I shall be reflecting on shortly. So there will be that and many other things to talk about, a chance for you to make and me to make, our unreliable predictions, questions, the whole thing. So get a glass of wine, cup of coffee, a beer, and we'll have a good night together. That's Monday, next Monday, November the 23rd, and tickets are on the King's Place website. So see you then. In the meantime, yeah, well, where to start? It's got to be the reset after the cathartic purging of the vote leave mob, Kano, and uh, uh, that's what they call him, Kano, and Dominic Cummings. And what that will mean for sure is that at the beginning, at least, there will be a sense of a tonal change. This is the easy bit of any resetting, in inverted commas. It's quite easy to suddenly appear nice when you've been appearing stroppy and aggressive. You just decide to do so. So already there's been high excitement that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, appeared on Good Morning Britain with Piers Morgan on Monday morning. Wow, what a change in all our lives that this has happened and there will be more of that sort of thing we'll soon hear that that do you remember the boycott of the today program has ended permanently it was meant to be a temporary break during covid but that will end permanently and there will be other kind of mood music that suggests a new style of government and Allegra Stratton Boris Johnson's new favorite now he's discovered what Dominic Cummings was really like isn't Dominic Cummings she's a different kind of figure to have access to the prime minister and certainly isn't Kano in her style Kano the uh, tabloid journalist absolutely idolized Cummings and copied his aggressive style and Stratton will have a much greater sense of the rhythms of 
news which is needed in number 10 and this number 10 had no sense of that Cummings didn't understand the media he just liked slagging them off and Kano was famous for dressing up as a chicken and chasing Cameron and all the rest of it but didn't have any experience of broadcasting and only limited experience of news whereas she Allegra Stratton has been a newspaper journalist, a broadcaster, and so is a kind of figure aware of the rhythms. I always remember Tony Blair saying to me about Alistair Campbell very early on in government. He said, I think Alistair's a genius because he tells me whether a news story is going to run for one day, 10 days, and what we're going to do about it. And Allegra Stratton is emphatically not in Alistair Campbell's league, but she at least has a feel for news having worked within those different kinds of outlets and broadcasting is very very different from uh, news she's also a kind of a very different background i remember speaking to her her a lot when she was at the guardian during the um, 2010 labor leadership contest that ed miliband won and she chaired quite a few of the hustings of the leadership candidates and she certainly gave me the impression then that she was much closer to Labour than she was to the Conservatives. She now describes herself as a Johnson Tory. She couldn't really describe herself as an anti-Johnson Tory, given the, her new role. So she certainly had a kind of shift of gear, shall we say, politically. But that's a very different background from Cummings, the maverick who worked for Ian Duncan Smith, uh, was sacked twice, I think, by David Cameron as he worked with Gove, and so on. But as I said, the tonal changes in a government is quite easy to pull off. You know, it's not all about policy. And that is why to revive and slightly amend that well-known Theresa May phrase. In my view, nothing very much has changed. Do you remember Theresa May in the 2017 election claiming once she had done a U-turn on her elderly care policy? Uh, she declared, nothing has changed, nothing has changed. Well, I'm declaring, nothing very much has changed, nothing very much has changed. And the reason I say that is that the government's fate in the end is determined, obviously, by the people at the top, especially the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, and also the policy direction. And this government faces still two massive challenges, one wholly self-inflicted, Brexit, the other partly self-inflicted, its chaotic response to covid and this will determine the fate of Johnson and the government much more than whether Cummings is rampaging around or whether Kano is slagging off a journalist or a cabinet minister or whatever. And these haven't changed. Brexit is going to be a mess whether there is a flimsy deal or no deal. And we'll know in the next few days, and certainly I suspect by Monday night at King's Place, as in the streaming via King's Place of the show, the live show, whatever happens, there will be tumultuous consequences, both economically and politically. On Sunday night, that uh, silly uh, negotiator we've got, David Frost, tweeted a series of tweets about how there can only be a deal if the EU accepts the UK's full sovereignty and independence and concedes accordingly. 
Now, all trade deals are about a pooling, to some extent, of sovereignty. You form joint arrangements with a different country that are mutually enforced. And Frost doesn't seem to accept this with the European Union. And he is a hardline Brexiteer. He used to run the uh, Whiskey Association in Scotland. No wonder he's kind of not resigned yet anyway. He's, he's extraordinary, the power he's been given by this government, the EU negotiator and then the National Security Advisor, still to come for this figure of unproven greatness. But his views are shared, undoubtedly, by hardline Brexiteers in the Conservative Party, on the conserv some on the Conservative backbenches. And they will be fuming if this purity is impinged by a deal. In other words, Johnson, and it is down to him, has a huge call to make in the next few days about the degree he is willing to move from that purist position, that hardline Brexiteer position, the fantasy of total independence and pure sovereignty, to get a deal. Now, if he doesn't, we all know what no deal will mean. There will be massive tariffs all over the place. Britain will impose them. The European Union will impose them. Sometimes on WTO rules, farmers and car manufacturers and all the rest of it, punitive tariffs, chaos at the ports and the borders, and much more besides on a no deal. And businesses are beginning to get very noisy this week about the importance of there being a deal. But if there is a deal, Johnson will have to intervene, contradict his chief negotiator, Frost, by compromising on the purity of the Frost position. And that way he might get a deal. Uh, well, he will get a deal if he compromises enough. But it will be a flimsy deal. So he will go through the pain of compromise on fish, this Monty Python area of fish, 0.06% of the British economy, and on the so-called level playing field, where regulations will have to be jointly agreed between the EU and the UK for some form of free trade to function. But it will still be chaotic. So he will make those compromises, some will be up in arms, and yet I suspect on January the 1st onwards, there will still be bureaucratic chaos at the borders and much more beside. As Frost said in his series of tweets the other day, either way, there will be many changes as a result of what's about to happen. Uh, that's a euphemistic way of saying either way, there's going to be a lot of disruption. So you see what I mean about the reset? You can sort of appear on Piers Morgan and say you're not going to bash the BBC in quite the way Cummings had envisaged but Brexit has still to be navigated and it certainly won't be over on January the 1st either. This negotiation has been so limited by the time limit imposed on it by Johnson in his early machismo that there will still have to be much to go through and some of his MPs will watch with paranoia 
Some of his newly elected MPs from the so-called Red Wall are kind of torn. A lot of them are hardline Brexiteer supporters, but they know their constituencies will be badly affected as a result of a no deal. Some represent areas with manufacturing and some have even farms in it and the rest of it. And food shortages and food price rises going up is hardly what its voters will be looking forward to at the start of 2021, enduring also the consequences of COVID. So this is going to remain in place as an impossible situation, wholly self-inflicted, whatever attempts at a reset is made by the government in coming days. And the other is not only the response to COVID, which has highlighted the internal tensions within the Tory party, libertarians, versus those who believe in some form of regulatory state, and tensions within Johnson himself, the libertarian who at the beginning in early spring told people to go out still and enjoy themselves and go to football matches and the one who then got COVID and discovered that some rules might be needed to prevent it spreading across the country like fire and that is just one element of it the other of course is the economic response who is Johnson? Is he the figure who earlier this year declared in a speech that he was a Rooseveltian? Commitment to the Roosevelt approach to responding to economic downturns and recessions, big spending, a new deal, as Roosevelt put it. Or is he a sound money treasury sort of figure, one who hails lower taxes, tough on public spending, He likes lower taxes. So far, he hasn't shown a desire to be tough on public spending. But Sunak, from that Treasury orthodox perspective, will be wanting to do something on that as well. So spending. He's one in the sort of George Osborne wing of bringing back down deficits quickly. So how is that going to be resolved and in what form? What policies will be put in place? Big tax rises spending cuts when Johnson has been hailing himself as a Roosevelt. I think it's in these areas that um, the fate of the government will be determined, not the relaunch. Sorry, reset. It was, this is the other thing, by the way. Number 10 crises are nearly always traumatic. Prime ministers emerge from them sometimes and say, yeah, this is a chance for a relaunch. We've got rid of X, we've got rid of Y. But it isn't quite like that. The trauma somehow changes everything and undermines a prime minister's confidence in the end. I remember vividly the Gordon Brown trauma in number 10 when he decided not to call an early election in 2007 after a big build-up where many expected him to call it and advised him to and his team of close allies fell apart there had always been tensions within that team but it was a real fatal falling apart people like uh, Spencer Livermore Ed Balls uh, Damian McBride Ed Miliband they all had different interpretations of what went wrong in that early election crisis and Gordon Brown could never bring them together again to function as what was at times at its peak a formidable operation the other thing is 
these crises always tell you more about the personality of the Prime Minister than the advisors. It's the Prime Minister who chooses the advisors. It's the Prime Minister who, as we have just seen, can get rid of advisors. So this crisis in number 10 tells us all about Boris Johnson. Cummings is a figure who's gone now. Johnson is still there. And Johnson chose Cummings even though he had mountains of evidence of the destructive consequences of Cummings' style and ego. Uh, Cummings clearly bought the idea that he was a genius, and I think early on Johnson thought he was a genius, who somehow guided him every time towards the promised land, whether it was the Brexit referendum or the December election. But there was a mountain of evidence to suggest this was not the full picture by any means, and only recently has Johnson been alert to that. And it's because I think with Johnson, he's, he's, he's curious. I don't think he's very interested in people. He's very interested in himself. We all know that. And self-absorption often blinds people to the flaws and qualities of other individuals. Johnson is fascinated by icons who he can shape as he wishes, like um, Churchill or Pericles or Shakespeare. He was writing a book on Shakespeare, and no doubt, in the same way as his Churchill biography was mainly about him, I'm sure he would have concluded with Shakespeare that in a modern era, Shakespeare would have been a polemical, well-paid columnist who wrote weekly for the Daily Telegraph. But that isn't understanding people. His current favourite, Allegra Stratton, I wonder how much he understands her. What does he understand? Has he given much thought to the deeply flawed, weak cabinet he has assembled and the reasons why they are weak and the reasons why they don't challenge him and whether he should be challenged? I don't think he is interested in these things. So his judgment is still in place. All this nonsense about we're about to see the City Hall Boris Johnson who was so different from Prime Minister Boris Johnson well, I'm afraid he's the same person. People don't go through sudden metamorphoses. Johnson is Johnson. And so that's another reason why I suspect nothing very much has changed. That sounds more like Thatcher than May, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like either of them. Anyway, that's my kind of take of where we are. It's going to be an epic week. But in terms of the wider set of themes... They are the same set of themes with the same Prime Minister in place. Let's have a few of your questions, if you're all still up for it. Andrew Stewart has uh, emailed to say, I'm a regular at your King's Place events. Oh, thank you for that, Andrew. Hope to see you next Monday. Andrew's question is actually about something I sort of alluded to briefly. Was Cummings quite the uh, genius that uh, he was built up to be in winning the Brexit referendum and the 2019 election for the Tories, given the weakness of the opposition in 2019 and the huge risks of that Brexit referendum that Cameron announced. Well, I agree with you on both those counts. I don't think there's much evidence that he was a strategic genius. I think he was hugely helped by the portrayal of him, this is Cummings, by Benedict Cumberbatch in the Channel 4 drama about the Brexit referendum. And so, yeah, it's, um, you know, the 2019 election, 
as I've talked about before, historians will wonder in that hung parliament when the opposition parties wielded so much power, why did first of all the Lib, De Lib Dem leader at the time and then the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn hand Johnson the election on the date he wanted when still in his early political honeymoon. It was an election that was easy for Johnson to win and didn't involve much genius from Cummings. In my view, the 2016 referendum was lost for Remain the moment Cameron announced it. But that would be a whole podcast to explain why. Thank you for that. I, I agree with you. Scott McDonald writes, oh yeah, he's got a question about David Frost and Dido Harding, figures who he points out have immense influence over the government's handling of Brexit and COVID-19. His question is basically, what are they in terms of the constitution? They seem to be unaccountable and we don't know much about them. The government puts them in place in a sort of cronyist way. Yeah, well, it is interesting. I mean, in fairness to the government, every government appoints agents to carry out some of the work they couldn't do it themselves I mean Johnson can't carry out the entire Brexit negotiation himself he needs someone to do it so he's appointed Frost incidentally another case of a misjudgment of character Frost is not up to the task he's had no experience of trade negotiation he's got a few simplistic prejudices about Brexit but that is not enough indeed is a very dangerous place but Frost is accountable to Johnson he spent a lot of his time talking to Cummings. He will now speak, I suspect, directly to Johnson as this negotiation reaches its denouement. So Johnson has to explain what Frost is up to. So there is a link. And the same with Dido Harding, as she's accountable to the government. But their tendency to appoint unsuitable people because of their associations one way or another with Brexit or the Tory party, I agree, raises many questions. Thank you for that. Uh, Dominica asks about the future for Michael Gove, given that he was responsible for bringing Cummings into Downing Street. Presumably they're buddies. Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, it was Johnson again who's accountable. He brought Cummings into Downing Street and that raises issues about him. But Gove discovered Cummings, really. I mean, they worked together at the Department of Education to Cameron's despair. As I mentioned earlier, Cameron's had to get rid of Cummings. But there we go. Yeah, they are. Now, I think in terms of the future, Gove is more vulnerable because he is so associated now with this leadership and regime. And if Johnson were to go at any point it would be in the context of something really traumatic. Prime Ministers only fall if they are kicked out or decide to go because they have become overwhelmed by events. And in those circumstances, still unlikely, I suspect, the only Prime Minister in modern times who's resigned voluntarily is Harold Wilson. They all cling on. It's like that Woody Allen joke about uh, a person in a restaurant complaining about the quality of the food and adding and the portions are so small. When I wrote my book about prime ministers, now available in paperback with an added chapter on Boris Johnson, one of the things that struck me is how miserable prime ministers were a lot of the time and how much they wanted to stay in the job. But if they were to go, or he, sorry, if he were to go, Gove probably would stand, but I think they would want someone who conveyed, albeit in that shallow way I said earlier about reset, something different something new a break from the immediate past and I think Gove is too 
wrapped up in the current situation to personify a kind of move on. Venetia Kane sent in a question and Venetia says, I normally dance a sitting jiggle to your bouncy music, but today I was at a tricky point in my knitting. Well, good luck on all fronts and don't try it all together, the knitting and the dancing. Anyway, Venetia's question is, how accurate are polls? They appear to have been wrong to some extent in the US election and they have certainly been proven to be pretty unreliable guides in some British elections and therefore she wonders, for example, that the polls reporting a Labour lead could well be inaccurate because they seem to struggle with finding hidden Tories or hidden Republicans. Well, I, I, whatever the accuracy of the current polls, my view is, Venetia, that I bet most of you disagree with this, but I think polling should be banned in the run-up to general elections or presidential elections because they frame everything and then turn out to be inaccurate at times. We kind of talk non-stop oh god blimey you know the Tories are 20 points ahead they're going to win a landslide as in some of the talk in the 2017 election and I remember in 2010 columnists writing David Cameron's first cabinet predicting what it would be when he won his overall majority as polls predicted and it was a hung parliament and quarter of his cabinet was full of Lib Dems so I would just ban them. I think they're banned in France. I know it's very difficult in the era of social media because there will be unofficial polls, but um, I kind of think there's a case for just getting them out of the way because they are, like so many of us, unreliable narrators. Matthew Johnson emails. Thank you, Venetia. Matthew, hi, Steve. I'm usually in the kitchen listening to the podcast. Always a highlight of the week. Oh, thank you, Matthew. I hope it improves your cooking, he says, in a way that suggests he's on drugs. Me, not Matthew. Matthew wonders why there is silence amongst some, quite a lot of Tories who were previously critical of Boris Johnson, for example, Alan Duncan, who was very critical. Duncan worked with him at the Foreign Office and so on. And why that is? Well, part of the answer is, by the way, Alan Duncan isn't an MP anymore. So he hasn't got that much necessity to contribute if he doesn't want to. But I think one of the reasons is that certainly at the moment, privately, to my surprise, actually, a lot of the new intake are really critical and speak to journalists about their concerns. I'm not surprised they are concerned. I'm surprised at this early stage when they're still ambitious, when they're still dependent on the patronage of number 10 to get anywhere in politics, that they are privately critical. And I think some will start to speak out more volubly if the navigation I outlined earlier that has to be done on Brexit and COVID start to go wrong, and certainly if there are cock-ups in the distribution of the vaccine, and given the record so far, we can't be entirely relaxed about the uh, uh, success rate on distribution and all acquisition and all the other things that are going to be a logistical challenge for a government that does struggle to pull levers and make things happen. They pull levers, but things often don't happen. Not entirely their fault. As I've argued before, this is a dysfunctional 
UK in so many ways. Did you see Gordon Brown on Sunday? Sorry, I'm veering from the question, but he was talking about the need for the whole of the UK to be reformed, and only then could you have a referendum in Scotland, which would be independence versus a reformed UK. And Matt Hancock on Monday on the Stay programme pointed out that even though he was in charge of social care or responsible for social care, he had no power over what happened in care homes. That was down to local councils and the owners of care homes. Bizarre, contorted situation which applies across the board in the UK and I think there will be more of it. But I think MPs will start to speak out more if this so-called reset doesn't lead to substantial change, not just shallow communicative change. So there will be a bit more. And there is some now, actually. I don't know if any of you've read, if not, I recommend it, Rory Stewart's review of Tom Bower's book on Boris Johnson. It's in the TLS. I think it's online. You can just Google it and read it. It's sensational stuff. And to say it's critical is putting it uh, at a very restrained level. Finally, because you must all be exhausted because of all the things you do whilst listening to this uh, podcast. By the way, I bumped into someone who listened to the podcast on Sunday who tells me he does press-ups during it. And also, by the way, I got an email from somebody who really disapproves of me talking or asking you or hearing about what you all do during the podcast. He said, look, just stick to the politics. None of the, the none of the distractions. Well, I'm sorry, I quite like the distractions. Not distractions, it's part of the community, the rock and roll politics community, about what we do as we reflect on troubled times. Talking of which, Sam Trendle email saying oh thank you I'm a big fan of the podcast oh and this is what really I know this that the person who emailed to complain uh, he's going to complain again I bet after this one Sam says I'm currently training to do a half marathon and building up my mileage on the Parkland Walk the old railway line in Crouch End and your podcast really helps me reach my running goals well, I, you'll break all records on the half marathon listening to this podcast but that's amazing because that's where I run as well I suspect not as fast or as far. That's where Jeremy Corbyn's often running along there as well. I don't know if you've seen him. Anyway, so that's going to so annoy annoy the guy who emailed about stick to the politics. So let's get to the politics. And Sam asks, my question is about phrases like the establishment and paper cutout. I've heard these phrases being aimed at Keir Starmer, a supposedly paid-up member of the establishment, in inverted commas, whatever that means, and a paper cutout who's not in touch with the normal person on the street. Do you think the labels are aimed at him by his opponents, purely on the grounds that he's a man in a suit with a legal background and is London-based? And how do you think Starmer and his team should react, however unfair these labels are? Uh, it's a really interesting theme, actually, which I'd like to spend more on in a podcast about how so many labels in British politics are a complete red herring, a distortion. They are one-dimensional caricatures. I would include other terms like modernizer. Oh, there's David Cameron, the modernizer, was he? What does it mean, modernizer? War criminal, hard left. All these terms are banded around without any precision at all. And some of those aimed at Starmer are also an absolute caricature. It's the fact that he lives in London. I mean, Boris Johnson lived in London. 
Dominic Cummings, who framed all this stuff. He's just an Islington lawyer, as if this is a terrible sin. Well, Cummings lives in Islington. Mind you, he's irrelevant now. He's gone. But all these terms are hugely misleading. And yet, I think, as you imply, do have impact. It is amazing how a caricature in the eyes of many voters becomes the person, or the person, sorry, becomes the caricature. Neil Kinnock, who was a complicated multi-dimensional figure was the Welsh windbag and it's all nonsense what does the establishment mean one of the clever things is of the Brexit campaign and of Johnson was to appear anti-establishment anti-elite when he went to Eton edited the spectator wrote for the Daily Telegraph and was a Tory MP I mean, these terms are utterly meaningless. And if I were to advise Keir Starmer, I would try and just get on with it and be as close to yourself as you can possibly be as a public figure. It's a cliche, but authenticity matters and inauthenticity is hopeless. And quite often inauthenticity arises when people try to be what they're not in response to critical caricatures. Ed Miliband being an example of that, I think. Anyway, look, thanks. Sorry if I didn't read. I got loads of questions and emails, some on the presidential election situation, the link between Biden and the Labour Party and all kinds of things. And hopefully I'll be able to reflect on them in the coming weeks and at King's Place as well. So there will be more time for questions as the dramas unfold. So, I'll be back with the podcast next week, but also more pivotally, that's not a word, is it? Uh, Forget it. I'll basically be at King's Place on Monday, so do get a ticket so we can continue there, have a longer discussion over Monday evening. As I say, I think it will be a moment of political heightened excitement in relation to deal or no deal, one of the themes that has dominated our lives for the last two and a half thousand years. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Keep the questions coming and the points you want to raise and what you do while you're listening, whatever the criticism from my emailer who doesn't like that. And um, I hope you finished 5K, 10K, press-ups, cooking, knitting, and see you next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.